That was beautiful. Thanks, guys. What a great time to be in worship together. I always look forward to this time. Um, as we get started today, um, you may know we're starting a new teaching series. And uh, way back when, like four weeks ago, we finished up a, a series on the Beatitudes called Beautiful Attitudes. And we've not ultimately left the Sermon on the Mount yet. What we're going to do is uh, the Beautiful Attitudes... Now we're going to spend eight weeks in a study through Ruth in a series called Everyday People. After that's over, we'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount and uh, do a study on the Lord's Prayer. And once that's finished, we're going to come back to Judges and do another uh, take on everyday people as we study the life of Gideon in the Bible. After that's over, back to the Sermon on the Mount and we'll finish it up from there. So snip, snap, snip, snap, back and forth. So it's going to be awesome. Uh, let's see. Today we're starting, uh, like I said, a study through Ruth called Everyday People. And today's message is called A Case of the Mondays. A Case of the Mondays. Uh, has anyone here ever had a bad case of the Mondays? Yeah? I see those hands. <laughs> yeah, I think it happens to all of us. We, we have a bad case of the Mondays, especially after a great weekend. Uh, a great weekend with family, with fun, with friends. Uh, things are going just great. And then, bam! Monday. Monday comes. The work week starts. This seems to be a fairly universal experience. For all of us who, sus who subscribe to the Gregorian calendar, who have a, a grasp of the planetary week idea, Mondays happen to us all. Mondays happen to us all. At root... What is be, uh, what's behind this experience? Why can we all sit here and when I say, if you had a case of the Mondays, you raise your hand, we're all feeling and thinking the same thing. What is behind this experience? What is the, the inherent disappointment with the idea of Mondays? There are many factors, but essentially, I believe it's this. I believe it is the descent from the ideal to the real, from the memorable to the mundane, from the lofty to the lived out, from the Sunday to the Monday. This dynamic is perhaps most keenly and most disquietingly encountered in the life of faith, in the experience of a Christ follower. I don't think it gets better when you're a Christian. In some ways, I think it gets maybe worse, more severe. Here's what I mean. We gather on Sundays to worship. We gather on Sundays to worship, to lift our voices to God, the creator of the universe. We gather on Sundays to order our affections, to order our intentions toward Jesus and toward His way. And just for a moment, just for a moment, all is right in the world. But then we leave worship. We leave worship. We walk the long corridor between wor the worship space and the workspace. And something happens. Something changes. Something falls away 
as we walk from the worship space to that workspace. It's like we move out of the sanctuary and into the foyer, uh, away from the altar and out into the parking lot, away from the quiet and out into the noisy. Do you sense this disconnection in your life? You're familiar with this experience, right? We step out of the clarifying and into the, cha the chaotic. Leaving the sacred, we go out into our week and we enter the sloppy. One of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson, and I love how he explains this, this, this disconnection or this, this, this transition that happens when we leave worship, when we leave Sunday and head into Monday. Eugene Peterson explains it this way. Each Lord's Day worship divides the water of chaos that on command roll back to the right and to the left while the people march through in glad triumph. For an hour, all truth is proportioned, contemporary, and complete. God's word is proclaimed, affirmed, and accepted. Then the pastor lifts his arms in benediction, giving witness to the wholeness of salvation and promising the continuities of blessing through the week. In another hour or so, the sanctuary is empty on the one side and the parking lot empty on the other. He goes to his study and begins to look over the notes from and about persons who need visitation and counsel. In the sanctuary, the pastor works in an atmosphere of acknowledged faith. Every detail is clear, symmetrical, and purposed under the sign of redemption. In the foyer, things are very different. The people, having received the benediction, now make a disorderly re-entry into a world of muddled marriages and chaotic cities, midlife boredom and adolescent confusion, ethical ambiguity and emotional distress. The pastor, who has just lifted the cup of blessing before the people, now shakes hands with the man whose wife has left him for another. The pastor who has just poured the waters of baptism on the head of an infant now sees pain in the eyes of the mother whose teenager is full of angry rebellion. The pastor who has just addressed a merciful father in prayer now arranges to visit a bitter and cynical executive who has been unexpectedly discharged from his job. The pastor who has just been confidently handling the scriptures now touches hands that are tense with anxiety and calloused in a harsh servitude. You know, perhaps this is part of the reason why our faith practice sometimes has trouble overlapping. I think this is why our faith practice, our following of Jesus, sometimes has trouble overlapping into our real life. Maybe this is why um, our Sunday struggles to speak into our Monday through Friday life. Have you ever wondered about this? Maybe you've noticed this. Seems to me uh, our walk with Jesus, which is very real, our walk with Jesus is sometimes, though, held in a different compartment, in a different category. It's held separate from our regular life because we don't actually, at root, expect it to translate very well. It's so heavenly, it's hard to integrate into the mundane, just lived-out physicality of our week. 
But, it, but here's the thing, and this is what Jesus demonstrates and, and motivates us and, and pushes us toward over and over throughout Scripture. Our faith absolutely and necessarily speaks into and translates into our weak. It must. And until we figure out and anticipate that strange collision between Sunday and Monday, we will never fully hear the gospel. We will never fully hear or step into that transformative work of the gospel until we can step into that collision, that strange collision that happens between Sunday and Monday, until we engage the life with God, not purely as a, a spiritual experience, but also as a lived out a daily grind kind of experience, we will never grasp the full story of the Bible. We will never grasp the full grandeur of the good news. Indeed, we will never fully grip or grasp how God is at work in the world today. Our perception is skewed if we only see the work of God taking place in dreamy Sunday tones. Our view of God, our perception of Him is skewed if we only see His work in these dreamy Sunday tones of shimmering sunsets and swirling doves in the Bible and otherwise. The Bible is filled with stories of God encountering everyday people in their cubicles, on weekdays, in the middle of their mess, as they muddle through their unspectacular day-to-day -day routines, isn't it? I mean, the Bible's a really rare book in the sense that it tells the story of a matchless, unchangeable, sovereign God getting right in the mess with people. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Jacob, Mary, the Apostle Paul, you, me. This is what God does. God goes after everyday people. He goes after everyday people just like us. And sometimes, perhaps most of the time, He does it on Monday. He does it on Monday, not on Sunday. I mean, Sunday is great and necessary, meaningful, life-changing. But where God will probably meet you this week may not be here. It may be on Monday. All of this, then, leads me to my basic point, my idea introduction for today, for this series, and it's this. God uses everyday people like you and me to tell the story of salvation in the world. I'll repeat that so you can remember it, because it'll come up. God uses everyday people like you and me to tell the story of salvation in the world. Peterson goes on to say, each detail of each person's life is a part of a larger story, and that larger story is salvation. Think about that. The story that God is telling through your life is a small part of that larger story, which is the story of salvation. What Christ accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago includes you, involves you. That story is being told through you here and now. Does anyone else feel tingly about that? Like a little bit of like, well, yeah. I got the hibbidjibbids. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You should. You should encounter truths like this, and it should make you feel like, wow, there's more going on here than I sometimes re realize or imagine. We must carry this understanding that God is at work. 
through my life, that he is telling the story of salvation through my life in him. Now, we must carry this understanding of how God works with us as we uh, read the Bible. As we engage scripture, we must carry this understanding. We must have this lens on as a primary lens when we engage scripture. And today, like I said, we begin a multi-week study of the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is maybe one of the best Monday stories in the whole Bible. If you read it, it's a Monday story. It's not a Sunday story. It feels a little down to earth, kind of granola, kind of dirty, kind of grimy. It's normal. Um, it is the story of two everyday women uh, who are widows, eventually, and an everyday farmer. It is tucked into our Bibles between the book of Judges and the, the books of the Samuels. Okay, if you get to the end of Judges, there's this little book called Ruth, and then it moves on to the Samuels. But this story is a perfect example of the ordinary, everyday, Monday through Friday way that God seems to work in the world. Trust me, you can miss how God is at work in the world if you're only looking for the big stuff, the dramatic, the dove flying down from heaven with a, with a branch in its mouth and its tail on fire. If you're always waiting for that, you're going to miss how God's at work in the world. And Ruth is a perfect example of that. Through our time spent in the pages of Ruth's story, I think we will hear a familiar story. Not just because we've read Ruth's story, but because we know our story. As we read the story of Ruth, I think we'll find it familiar because it is our story, in a way. We might discover that God has a way of pursuing His purposes among us in surprising, yet over, easily overlooked ways. My aim is that we will all come away better able to understand and to believe that, as Alistair Begg says, no matter how dark and dramatic the events of life may appear to be, that God still has His people, is still working His purposes out, and is often choosing to do so in places that we would regard as very unlikely, and is choosing to do so in such a quiet fashion that those of us who tend to believe that the dramatic and the loud is the significant are caused to wonder whether God is doing anything at all. So, I know you've been itching for this moment. Turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 1. Remember, go to the end of Judges, and it should be on that very next page in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Verse 3, Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Dun, dun, dun.
The story of Ruth is an ancient story. It's an ancient story of God working out the great themes of salvation in the very local context, in unremarkable places among everyday people. These first five verses set up our story. It sets up our story against a backdrop of a real place. It tells you where this is happening and what that place is like. So it's setting up this story against the backdrop of a real place with a real history. It says, in the days when the judges ruled Israel in the time of a severe famine. A man named Elimelech, which, uh, hold on to this, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Elimelech, my God is king. He is from a town called Bethlehem. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. He leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, for Moab so that he can find work and can find food. The irony is not lost on us here, right? He has left the house of bread because there is no food to go to Moab, to go to the outsiders. Now, you're right. You're saying, Bethlehem, where have I heard that name before? You've heard about Bethlehem because it shows up in another popular story. Bethlehem figures into another story about 1,000 years later as God reveals another chapter in his story of salvation when Jesus is born to, Jesus is born among, and Jesus is born for everyday people. But first, here we are. Bethlehem sets the stage for the ill-fated sojourn of Elimelech and his family. He travels with his wife. Does anyone know, uh, her name is Naomi. Does anyone know what Naomi's name means while we're at it? Pleasant. pleasant. Naomi's name means pleasant. And, and Elimelech's two sons, Malon and Kilion, anyone know what their names mean? Malon means sickness. And Kilion means wasting. Now, we aren't told why they chose these names for their boy, boys. But these names do tell me a couple of different things. It tells me this. The story of Elimelech and Naomi, it opens against the background of a Sunday kind of faith with names like, My God is King and Pleasant. But for some reason, their sons have very Monday names. Their sons have Monday names, sickness, and wasting. From the outset, the conflict is set. The conflict between Sunday and Monday life with God is set up for us. They settled in Moab, but then Elimelech dies. We don't know why. We don't know how, but her husband Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a grieving widow, vulnerable, exposed, and afraid. Then her sons both marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. But sadly, ten years later, both of Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, they die for unknown reasons, leaving her completely bereft, completely without protection in the world. The grinding weight of famine, of dislocation, of loss, and of grief, these things frame our story just in those five verses. This sets up our entire story, where we're going to spend the next eight weeks. This story is framed by the grinding weight of famine, dislocation, loss, and grief. Now, to, to confess to you, I, I've not 
In my 20 years of ministry, I've not spent much time in the book of Ruth. I've never studied it in depth. I've never taught it. But I can tell you I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this next couple months together as we study the book of Ruth. I think we will find this story to be richly rewarding and strangely timely. I think God has brought us all to this point on purpose, and He will speak to us. He will grow us through this experience. In the weeks ahead, we will grow more familiar with the characters in our story, Naomi, Ruth, and a man named Boaz. We'll interact with the important themes of God's providence, His covenant faithfulness, and His deep and abiding care for us. But first... My hope is this. My hope is that we become more familiar with God and with ourselves. More familiar with how He is at work in us, around us, and through us all week long. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it's normal enough to contain stories like the, the book of Ruth. That we can sit long enough, that we can... Uh, stare intently enough into this story, into this context, to see something about you and your character and your, and your tenacity, your patience, your commitment to your human project, that even in the broken places, even in the Bethlehems and the Moabs and, and all the places where suffering has happened, loss has happened, grief happens, you still are working out your salvation story. Over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, it's proven to us that you don't just pick the strongest, the tallest, the best looking, or the most powerful. You choose everyday people, just regular people like, like us. And so, God, that gives me great hope. And I pray that you would do that again. Do that again in our time, in our midst, in our place. God, we desire to be used by you. We desire to see you at work in the world God, when we hear that your salvation story is even being told through my little life, my little part of that story, that brings a certain dignity and worth and, and value and motivation to my time, to the days I've been given. So God, I pray that I would rightly appropriate that and understand that how I go into Monday, how I go into this week, it, it comes to bear on the story of salvation in the world, the story of redemption. So God, may I play my part and may I play it faithfully. Lord, be honored. Be glorified, I pray. God, I pray for my friends that maybe have been living oblivious to that. Maybe they, re they recognize that their, their, the practice of their faith and their work week have been uh, existing in separate categories, separate containers. That their commitment to you and their identity in you really hasn't uh, uh, interacted rightly with their week. They've not really embraced that strange collision between Sunday and Monday. So God, I pray that uh, we would have a new awareness as followers of Jesus that what you're doing in our world happens Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, and then, then Sunday we come back together to do this special thing, but then we head back out into Monday. Lord, I pray too for anyone here that's never followed Jesus. I pray that they would see clearly, hear clearly, that this is what Christ has invited us, us into a, a, a a whole experience, a unified experience, a challenging experience all week long to follow after you wherever that leads, that through them too you could be telling the story of salvation. And God, I pray that you would. I pray that you'd be glorified by everything that happens in the next days to come. 
And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, we have a couple of announcements. And uh, just to mix things up, whack, Curtis is going to come and do announcements today. And uh, hey, uh, Kendi came home. Uh, she's home from Ohio. I don't know where she is. Oh, there she is up there. Uh, how's your dad doing? Well, good. I'm glad he's doing better. Um, Curtis is going to make some announcements, and I'll come up and finish this up yep. when you're finished. All right. All right. So we're in November. 